Welcome to A Just Transition, brought to you by RBS International. My name's Tim Phillips, and I am joined today again by my co-host, Bradley Davidson from RBS International. Bradley, welcome. Hi, Tim. How are you doing? I'm doing well. I hope you're well as well. Now, Bradley, remind me what Just Transition's all about. Yeah, it's good to be back with you and welcome again to our listeners. For those joining us for the first time, it's great to have you here. Welcome along. We've launched a new podcast to host insightful discussions exploring how private investment can help tackle society's greatest challenges. Each month, we're inviting an industry leader to have an open and frank discussion about a key topic affecting the ESG market, ultimately helping our customers as they embark on the sustainability journey with us. If you did miss our first episode, please do make sure you go back and listen to our discussion with Tanya Kanegi from KPMG Impact where we outline tangible first steps and considerations for those customers new to ESG. If you did miss our first episode, what were you doing? But this one will be just as good because we've got another great guest, haven't we, Bradley? Who are we talking to this week and what are we talking about? Yes, this week we're exploring one of the key focus areas in the lead up to COP26, the path to net zero. We'll discuss the nuances involved as we get into our discussion, but just to set the scene from the top, net zero refers to balancing the greenhouse gases produced by a business or country with an equivalent amount that are offset or sequestered. To help us get into the detail, we're joined by James Armstrong, founder and managing partner at Bluefield Partners. Welcome to the podcast, James. Hello, Bradley. Nice to be here. Hello, Tim. Welcome, James. Yes. It's great to have you with us. Um, before we get into all things net zero, could you touch on the work of Bluefield Partners for those listeners who may not be familiar? Yeah, so we're um, an investment advisor into renewables focused on the UK and Europe. And what we do is we look to raise funds, so attract capital into renewable strategies. And probably the biggest example of that, certainly with the UK focus, is a publicly traded company we have called the Bluefield Solar Income Fund, which has about a billion pounds worth of renewable assets uh, in its portfolio. Our theme today is the path to net zero. First thing I've got to ask you, James, we hear a lot about this net zero target. Is it a real target or is it just something that people like to talk about that'll never happen? Well, it's a good question. It's very much a real target. And you've now got about 70% of the world's GDP in terms of governments have signed up to net zero targets by 2050. So yes, I think one should view it as very real. The challenge is 2050 is quite a long way away. But I think in terms of is there a direction of travel that's encouraging in terms of combating climate change? Yes, I think the net zero targets are a good starting point. Bradley, does the bank take net zero seriously? Absolutely. At RBS International, we've set our own net zero targets. We're also looking at our financed emissions to really capture all of the carbon that we support and rely upon as a business. And so we take it incredibly seriously. I think when we're looking at net zero, as I said at the start of the podcast, it's going to be a key issue as we get to COP26. Earlier in the year, we had the uh, UK's 10-point plan. Mm. And so it's interesting to start to see governments really feed into the idea of net zero. The UK, of course, was one of the first countries to set a net zero target by 2050, although there's still a lot of work to be done towards that target. And there's been a lot of criticism in, in terms of the actual details of that plan. Bradley, tell me about this 10-point plan, because I'm a journalist. I'm very suspicious when government issues big plans like this, because many of them really are just to get people to shut up and go away. Is the 10-point plan a serious plan of action? 
So the 10-point plan ultimately was designed to fill the gap between the what, so that net zero target by 2050, and start mm-hmm. to provide some more details about the how. The plan has particular focus on private investment, which as an organization and a bank that supports funds customers, we were glad to see because we recognize that private investment plays a huge role towards both net zero, but also the Paris Agreement. And so we were really pleased to see that. I think there are still some areas that require further detail. And I think that's a narrative we're seeing across the market. The main examples that you'll see pointed to is the idea of this kind of efficient and green homes. And of course, we had the Green Homes Grant, which was the kind of flagship policy that Rishi Sunak released as part of the 10-point plan. And ultimately, the plan has fallen in disarray. I don't think it's controversial to say that anymore. I think that's a recognized fact. And so to see one of the flagship policies start to crumble is disappointing and ultimately shows we've got more work to do. We know that their energy efficiency of homes is a key target on the way to net zero. And so that's one of my personal things that I want to see out of COP26 is how we're rebuilding that and how we're supporting that development now that the Green Homes Grant has fallen away somewhat. James, how does the 10-point plan help you? I think the 10-point plan is really important. I think if we just take a sort of step back to the 10-point plan, that the challenge with the 2050 net zero targets are things can be kicked down the road. And I think what's significant about the 10-point plan, it's about what is going to be achieved really in the next 10 years. And that's really vital. If you look at the science, if we are to avoid irreversible damage to the climate, it's about the actions we take in the next 10 years. I like its ambition. For a financier, so looking at the green finance markets, whether it's equity or debt, that sort of ambition is very important to the comfort and the support that both banks like RBS and also investors like Bluefield will get. There is a little bit of blue sky in it, Tim, I have to say. Mm. That is for sure. But then I think we all need to be pretty ambitious. I'm not going to criticize that. There are some quite big leaps forward we need in technology in terms of things like the hydrogen program, which is quite a key element to it, which is at the moment is not commercially scaled in the way it would need to be to deliver the 10-point plan. But when you look at the offshore wind, the big centerpiece is the offshore wind market, which is 40 gigawatts. Mm -hmm. As Bradley said, that's about attracting tens of billions of private capital into that market to support some public money. I can't criticise that. I think that's a great centrepiece. Bradley, is this affecting day-to-day investment strategy already? Is it happening now? Or as James says, is it getting kicked down the road? It is happening now, and James alluded to it, but one of the main changes we've seen over the last year is that investors are scrutinizing a fund's ESG strategy to a greater degree than ever before. And so our customers face material investor demand to demonstrate tangible actions towards environmental, social, and governance factors. Now, when we bring that back to net zero, that means that simply setting a target without any supporting actions to support will very soon highlight those funds that are falling behind the curve. I think something that's interesting about decarbonization is that unlike many ESG metrics that that vary depending on a fund's investment strategy, greenhouse gas emissions are universal. And so it's likely that decarbonisation plans will be used as a pillar benchmark to compare our customers against their peers in terms of investment buy and sell decisions. I think there's many methodologies developing over the industry. So you've got things like PCAF, which is the Partnership for Carbon Accounting, Financials, or SBTI, so the Science-Based Targets Initiative, which can provide a framework to not only establish your current carbon demands, but also set pathways and actions in line with Paris Agreement or net zero. And then finally, James mentioned banks there. So I do want to touch on the cost of capital. 
We've mentioned investors, but banks are increasingly setting their own net zero targets and making commitments to reduce their financed emissions, as we are at RBS International. And so over time, this will result in greater financing costs for carbon intensive counterparts. The good news is that facilities like green loans or sustainability linked loans also provide a financial incentive for those able to demonstrate that they're working towards these targets. And so we do have both the carrot and the stick there. But ultimately, a customer's ESG strategy will become a crucial factor in how they're able to finance their business. So I've got my view there, but I'd really like to hear from James, who's kind of living and breathing this. James, how does this target influence your strategy at Bluefield? Well, I think it's for me, I've been in the industry, the renewables industry, about 15 years. And I think we've never seen such a collision in a positive way of government policy and the public mood about the concern over climate change. When you look at something like the 10-point plan, it is clearly, as an investor, it is a very comforting and supportive backdrop. Now, the detail, that doesn't mean you can make successful investments. It does mean that you've got a policy framework If consistent, this is very important because what all investors want is certainty and consistency. But if you can get that consistency of policy, then it's going to be very powerful in terms of the ability to attract a low cost of capital. And this is very important. It's about being able for the society to be able to transition from fossil fuels into renewables in the most efficient way possible. And I think so when you start to have these sort of policy frameworks, which have that sort of ambition, it's very important. How does it shape one's specific policies, someone like Bluefield? I mean, clearly, you're going to look at the main policy drivers and see how we as a business, which has a platform of you know, investment, technical and operational capability, how can we work with these ambitions to deliver very effective investments for our shareholders? And so that's obviously looking at wind investments, looking at storage, which is going to be a very key element. And then obviously, sticking to our sort of core strategy within the public company in the UK, which is solar investments. But I think just the overarching point is that it's very supportive for the finance community to have this sort of policy frameworks being introduced. James, talking about effective investments, how much of the transition to net zero depends on government subsidy? So one of the mechanisms, the main mechanisms they were used, Tim, is called the contracts of difference. So particularly, let's take the offshore wind market. That's where that you would have through auction processes, which are obviously competitive. Then there's a bid process to try and get into some capacity that's being sold. And obviously, the most competitive bids work. So what I think people possibly who aren't in the industry have missed in the last decade or so is that the cost of renewables has come down enormously. We're talking about the solar industry over 90%. You're seeing wind investors not far behind that. And so you've now not only got something which is good for the environment, but it's very cost effective as well. So having subsidies should not be confused with it being expensive. Five years ago, 1% of the world's population lived in a part of the world where solar or wind was the cheapest form of energy. Now it's over 60%. And that gives you an idea of the dynamic, the cost dynamic. So yes, there will be support mechanisms in place, but it's also an increasingly cost-effective way of providing energy. As an entity that is intrinsically green, how important are the social and governance factors to your business? Well, I think they need to be as important to us as they would be to any other business. I have to say, I think that however you want to package them up, the ideas of good governance, transparency and reporting, having an understanding of the social impact of your investments, 
has always been with us, and particularly in the, taking the public company again, being in that public market eye is very important. And so I think just because we're very good on the environmental bit doesn't mean you have to then not have that sort of focus on the S and the G. And I think, as you said earlier, Bradley, businesses are only sort of now beginning to understand the importance of this, whatever industry they're in. It's not only the fact that there is the sort of the carrot for lower cost financing, if you can get green bonds or, or similar, but there's also the stick because if you don't do this, then businesses are going to be penalised. And so it's vitally important for any company to really focus on those three areas. James, is it true that you have beehives on your solar sites? We certainly do, Tim. And you can have some honey if you're, oh, if, if, yeah, if you're very lucky. If we do a good job on the podcast, <laughs> then we get some honey for it. So finally, James, we have some questions for you because there is one date in everybody's diary in this industry, and that is COP26 coming up later this year. First of all, I wanted to ask you, if this was a perfect world, it isn't, but if it was, what would you want from COP26? Yeah, that's a great question. For me, I think it goes back to my earlier comments about the next decade being vitally important. I think we have to see coordinated global commitments to decarbonisation over the next 10 years, not over the next 30 years. And I think that has to include China and India. And it's a challenging area. Clearly, there's very positive movements in the US. Europe is very focused on this, I have to say. But I think the dream scenario would be to see that sort of coordinated response with a really hard measures that can't just be kicked down the road. Tim's kindly left me to be the cynic. So in a real <laughs> world, what do you need from COP26? Focusing on, again, the UK business. I think it's that point about consistency, Bradley, in terms of turning the 10-point plan into a framework. You know, we're talking about getting the, we need to get some of these CFD auctions actually on the tracks and going through in different technologies. So I think for me, it's the, the stimulus the government needs to really put into hard measure the ambitions that they've shown in the 10-point plan. And I think on a local level, which I think would be very good for the UK, I think that's what we would like to see. Well, James, on behalf of the world's bees, and of course, on behalf of Bradley and myself, we hope you get what you want from COP26. Thank you very much for taking time to chat to us today. That's great, Tim. Thank you very much. Thank you, Bradley. Thank you, James. Bradley, we're at the end now. We're going to be taking a little bit of a break, aren't we, before the next episode? We are indeed. We're going to take a summer break, as everyone needs every now and again. But we'll be returning in September with some insightful discussions for you from then. So until then, from Bradley and myself, goodbye. Goodbye.